and who's written a brilliant book about birds. But um, I want to ask them personally how they came to be so interested in this amazing part of nature. First, Sonia, how come? Mm. Hi, everyone. Uh, I guess I grew up in Philadelphia, which was a really big city, and birds were not on my mind when I was growing up. But I had a grandmother who collected every stray cat in the neighborhood, and the cat gave birth to kittens, and I watched the cat teaching the kittens how to hunt. And there are these moments in your life when you've seen something, and it just captures your attention, and it stayed with me. And then when I was a bit older, after going to university and having excited people tell me about what they had seen about birds. And I thought, oh, they're so excited about it. And I picked up on their excitement. And I thought, I'll have a look at birds, but then I'll get back to mammals. And that was 30 years ago. I'm absolutely enraptured with birds. And the wonder of birds, it takes you by surprise because they reveal things that you did not think was possible. And then you're hooked. Jim. I, well, I've always been impressed with birds, especially birds of prey, and all my life, hiking and fishing and so on, I've always seen birds, kingfishers especially. Uh, but it wasn't until about five years ago when I did a, I went to a laboratory in Missoula at the University of Montana where I live, and they had hummingbirds, they had several hummingbirds there, and they put these birds in a wind tunnel, uh, and they cranked the wind up to about 30 miles an hour and the bird is feeding in a feeding tube. It's, it's drinking nectar, but be, and it's flying as hard as it's can, it can into this wind. But it, so essentially, it's staying stationary. It's like a treadmill. And what they do then is they take high-speed uh, video of this flying bird standing still, flying still, and they slow the film way down. This is especially high-resolution uh, video that was uh, created to um, study ordnance uh, blasts where they could slow down in the army they would take photography or video of blasts and then study what the blasts were so this is kind of a <coughs> excuse me swords into plowshares scenario so they would uh, slow the video way down and they could understand how hummingbirds which weigh about the same as two paper clips can fly from Canada to Mexico through wind and rain and, and learn more about that. And, and it was a revelation to me that you could take something that I'd always seen in the wild and kind of tame it and make it do your bidding so you could understand more about it. And so I was, I was raptured, enraptured in the same way when I, when I saw these hummingbirds that the, that the researcher trapped in his backyard and brought into the lab. So that's where I got my hook. Now, I mentioned two cover stories of National Geographic magazine, cover stories about birds, indicating that the research is really taking off. They're page after page after page of the science. Now, my own book was called In Love with Betty the Crow, and it talked about an experiment in Oxford. You probably know about I hope you know about it, where Betty the Crow from New Caledonia was in a cage with a great big collection of male birds who were given hooks and a tube in which there was food. And the male birds worked out in about five seconds that you take the tool, and they're not supposed to do this, you take the tool, you get the food out, and there's dinner. And they all went off and they took their hooks with them 
leaving Betty with no dinner and no hook. And this was filmed by mistake because the student who was supposed to turn off the video forgot. But being at Oxford, he was diligent. And the next morning, he checked the video. And much to his astonishment, he found that Betty had found a straight piece of wire, looked at the tube, looked at the wire, and then bent the wire to exactly the right dimension. It's called engineering. It's called planning, and it's called a paper in the journal Nature and headlines all over the world. That was Betty the Crow. The science, would you agree, Sonia, has really taken off? Absolutely. Uh, so I guess w one thing that you could ask about science is what is science? And um, when we contemplate birds, um, how do we use a scientific approach to you know, marvel at their capacity? So science starts with an observation, and and Betty, you know, taking uh, doing the problem solving and bending uh, the uh, the metal rod to extract the food, that was an observation. That's the starting point. The question then is, um, you know, what questions do we ask about that observation? And that's where science kicks in. And when you get a story like that, the nice thing is that we humans, one of our our biggest um, traits. I think one of our most positive traits is that we have the capacity to wonder. And so that sent off uh, a whole bunch of research. Um, I guess uh, from my perspective, um, the, uh, the problem solving, the, the, the neurons and the uh, infrastructure that is involved to actually think and problem solve, um, it turns out uh, is very much a product of um, the environment of an embryo. Um, or a developing bird. So, uh, and, and we can talk about that, that story a bit later, but so my inclination when I hear about Betty the innovator, I want to know about her life and what she learned along the way uh, to have these skills, but other people ask other questions about it. Go on, Jim, what questions do you ask? I, I, th I think what's interesting these days is um, there's a physicist who, uh, Walter Heisenberg, who said, what we see is not nature, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. And I think what we're seeing is people are asking more imaginative questions these days about birds and other things. They're asking uh, uh, different questions. They're, they're really, we're in a kind of a renaissance period for wanting to understand these things at a deeper level. And that's, that's what I, I do with my book. I'm a journalist, not a scientist, but what I do is talk to people who uh, are interpreting birds in different ways and then kind of offer my own interpretation at the end of the book about the kinds of things we could come to understand um, if we really hone our questions and become much more imaginative in how and what we ask of these, these transcendent creatures that, that fly above us all the time. Jim, what do you think of our... Jim, what do you think of our Australian birds? Because as far as I'm concerned, amongst the parrots and the corvids, that's the crows and the magpies, amongst the most intelligent birds on earth, and they invented singing, so you've got the songbirds, which brought singing to the rest of the world. Pretty impressive stuff right here in Australia. Is that known in, in America? No, it's not. And I actually have not seen many Australian birds, I have to say. I've seen magpies. Uh, and some ducks along the river, which I couldn't identify. 
uh, down along the river uh, near the Palais. But other than that, I haven't been out that much to see anything. I've been, uh, I wouldn't say cooped up here at, uh, at WOMAD and the Writers' Festival, but I've been busy going from venue to venue, and so I haven't had a chance but to you get know out. But you know the reputation, don't you, of the birds? I, I do not. So enlighten me. <laughs> Sonia. Isn't that extraordinary? Uh, Says so, so the, the woman from Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's right. No, at I'm, Flinders University. I am from Flinders University these days, but my, my origin is from Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I moved to Australia in 2002, and I will never forget having a cup of tea in the morning in 2004 reading the advertiser. And, um, and there was a tiny little uh, blurb saying um, the origin of, of song is in Australia. And I, I'll never forget it. I put down my tea and I just walked around a bit. It was, it was mind-blowing. So it's not surprising uh, because it's a very recent discovery uh, that is uh, slowly uh, being told. But the origin of vocal learning is in Australia. And if you ponder that, because the songbirds evolved about 30 to 50 million years ago, there are not that many vocal learning species in the world. And I, I want to acknowledge uh, the beautiful location of the flying fox colony that is new to the Womadelaide Festival. They've been here since 2010 only. That's another order of vocal learning species. So part of me wonders how they're going on their eighth festival. Um, <laughs> But uh, back to the songbirds, uh, they, they learn their vocalization every generation anew. And so what we think of as a species-typical song has been learned in that generation, sort of like our Shakespearean English would be different from the English now. And when you ponder that, you know, sort of this concept of um, species permanence and culture, and what is culture, and how does learning affect um, the phenotypes that inhabit the earth, the Australian songbirds are the model system. Which, which are they all songbirds? There are, um, are, are all of the songbirds? Are all the songbirds here the ones that were the first, where the song originated, or just a certain species? Or? Yes, no, the most ancient lineages, including the superb fairy wren, um, the honey eaters, and um, you know, a couple of wrens. So the most ancient songbird and vocal learning lineages are still here, and they have not traveled to other parts of the world but other migratory species have. And so the birds in Europe and North America are derived from the songbirds that actually left Australia and colonized the rest of the world. And they're still migrating. Well, it, vocal learning in birds is one of the great big uh, phenomenons that has greatly informed uh, researchers about how humans learn to speak because it's a very similar process in humans and birds. A baby's born, it hears some singing, it tries its own effort at, at creating, they call it bird babble, uh, much like a baby. And then they start forming their own sounds and so forth. And by the time they're adults, they become fully formed uh, singing birds. And there are researchers all over the world, and some here in Australia, I bet, who study especially zebra finches and canaries, looking at their brains to understand how this process works and what we might learn in terms of speech defects and language and so on in humans because you can't take a human brain apart uh, the way you can a bird brain, so. Could I comment on that? Um, you're quite right. Uh, and I'd like to add another component to that, which is um, a very exciting discovery in 2014, so a decade after we 
discovered that the origin of vocal learning is in Australia. In 2014, there was a paper showing that 71% of extant species that are species that are alive today, the female also sings, not just the male. Now, when I went to university, the story was males sing to attract a female and to defend a territory. The female exercises a choice, so she picks the male with the best song. And it turns out that we've just been overlooking singing females. Now, why that is is, an, is another story. But we, we humans have the tremendous capacity to block out, to not actually see or pay attention to what is actually before us. And we sometimes perpetuate a story that's been told to us. So I was taught that males sing and that females choose a male. I was in this country for 10 years before I paid attention to the fact that the superb fairy wren female was singing her heart out. She was singing year round. Her song was as complex as the male song. She sang it in territory defense. She defended against intruders. And I'm a female scientist. I couldn't believe it. So, you know, you just look past it. And suddenly, so we did look at it, and this is where I'd like to pick up with the vocal learning. A PhD student, Christine Evans, who's now Dr. Evans, looked at vocal learning. So do, who do the sons and daughters learn from, given that mothers and fathers sing? And so she did some fantastic experiments, and she could show that the sons and daughters learn the vocal elements from the mother and the father, and the, the siblings, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, have a shared family repertoire that is an accumulation of both parents, and in this way prevents inbreeding, but they have the same complexity. Now I would like to know, if I may, from Sonia, what about learning while still in the egg? I did touch upon that. That was a very um, exciting discovery. We had put uh, microphones and video cameras at superb fairy wren nests, and we wanted to capture communication during predation events because the corvids of which you speak, the ravens and the magpies and the kerwongs, are so smart, and they are the top predators in Australia for songbirds. So we put the recorders at the nest, trying to capture the communication during such a predation event. And that's when, to our surprise, we discovered that the female sitting on the eggs was calling to the eggs in the absence of anyone else around. And we had the video on, so there was no other male, there was no other individual. She was calling while inside the nest. Again, this contradicted everything I had been told, that females are supposed to be inconspicuous and drab and tend the brood and, you know, and she's like blah, 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 singing and you could find the nest with the vocalization. That was a mystery that we solved uh, by showing that the female is vocally tutoring the embryo. And we developed non-invasive methods by putting the egg in heart rate monitors. We can actually look at learning um, while the embryo is listening to parental song, we could swap clutches of eggs and they actually came out singing what their foster mother had taught them. And when we put the egg in MRI scans, the more the mother had taught, the more neurons in the egg, the greater the cognitive capacity across the lifetime. So mothers matter, vocal mothers matter, and it, it creates entire vocal lineages and increased cognitive capacity. So it's a very exciting development. There you are. And tell me, how long are they in the egg to do this learning? Because surely it can't be more than a few weeks. 
about 15 days. Yes, yeah. 15 days. I mean, you have to be fairly acute to pick up that. The brain must be reasonably well developed. Well, gosh, that raises another question. Um, I'd like to mention the zebrafish at this point. Um, the zebrafish uh, is a fish. And researchers um, exposed the zebrafish uh, to light six hours after fertilization before any structures for vision or visual processing were there. And the zebrafish embryos that had been exposed to light went on to have bigger eyes and bigger brains and more survival. So I kind of put the question back to you, which is, you know, can something come from nothing? And this is a great philosophical question. So what are the stem cells for development? And it seems to me that individuals respond to stimuli even in the absence of structures for those stimuli. And that's a kind of a weird thought, and I bet Jim will have something to say on that. Uh, but that's sort of where we're up to, that even in the absence of well-developed ears, these embryos exposed to song develop the structures more quickly and better. Jim, do you want to comment? Well, I wish I did have more to say about that, but I, that's the first I've heard, so it's kind of hard for me to comment. Could I just interrupt then, because uh, talking about zebrafish, I broadcast just a matter of two, three, four weeks ago, work from the University of Queensland, where a zebrafish was being shown a movie <laughs> with a wire attached to the brain so that you could then perceive the signal coming out of that small brain. And the movie was not Finding Nemo, as various people had suggested in Queensland, half seriously, but it was of the food that the brain would instinctively, to some extent, respond to. And they could then see, when they showed a particular shape and a particular movement, that that brain of that tiny fish went ping. And the point of the exercise was to see with humans, when you've got those skull caps on, and you're trying to get some out of all the signals going on in our complex brains, which ones might mean certain things like, I'm paralyzed, I'm sitting in my wheelchair, wheelchair move forward. So when you can identify that signal, you can then tell the computer to act upon it, and it starts in a tank with a zebrafish watching a movie. <laughs> Sorry, you go on. That's all right. I'm going to swing back from fish to birds here. <laughs> um, but uh, the, one of the great discoveries in neuroscience was, was took place in a bird, in, in birds, in songbirds in New York. A fellow named Fernando Nanabam discovered in, I think it was canaries, that when, when it's time to, for the spring song, the mating song to come on, they, the birds grew new, new neurons in their brain to allow them to sing. And um, for years, no one believed it. And there was a primate researcher who fought it bitterly. And his, his comment was, read my lips, no new neurons. And it's a huge question in brain physiology. Do we grow new, new brain cells or not? And, and uh, so this, this discovery was held back for years until other people finally replicated. And it happens in humans as well. But what it shows is that we have the capability to Again, another, one, another interpretation of birds for humans. We have the capability, 
as well to grow new neurons. And there are legions of researchers looking at this concept of neurogenesis and how we might stimulate it in humans in order to combat things like Parkinson's or, or other um, brain-oriented brain diseases that, that deprive us of faculties, um, Alzheimer's and so on. One of the things we owe to the birds is their, their ability to grow new neurons and our ability to, to suss it out. Let me ask you a bigger question about that on the brain's power itself. Because Nikki Clayton at Cambridge has said that, going back to the corvids, going back to the parrots, and other birds as well, they have tiny brains which must be light because you're going to fly, but the neuronal, the brain cells are packed so that they're four times more dense in terms of their power than, say, our own brains. So the way Nikki Clayton describes it is that we've got like lasagna brains, whereas they've got uh, pizza pepperoni brains with you know, little dots of stuff. But in terms of power, four times more, so that you've got some very clever birds being as clever as a four-year-old human doing certain things. How do you feel about that? way of describing the power, Sonia, and then Jim. Uh, so the um, neurobiology has just seen tremendous leaps and bounds in how we can actually observe neurons live, non-invasively, and you can watch them grow in real time. So it only takes a few hours. Um, if you are stimulated by this conversation, neurons are growing. It does take a few days and some hormones. Dopamine's good to add, so if you add some reward to the neurons that have been growing and then have that conversation again, you will cement the path. Um, now, we can, uh, we can observe this in real time, and you can, this sounds a little horrible, but one can do it. You can cut open the brain um, cap of a songbird, and you can actually look at individual neurons firing in relation to song learning and track individual neural growth and individual neural death. And so it's by these new technologies that allow us to look inside the brain with a live bird while it is learning and growing. So in terms of the capacity of birds and their processing speed, absolutely. So they now know the, the structure, the engineering feat of a bird is incredible. And the brain is dense and the neurons fire um, much more quickly. But, but it means that the, the time is actually slower for a bird. So if we hear chip, then the bird actually hears it 10 times slower. And it could be, um, hey, I'm going over to the lake now, you know, in that um, time. So they, they have a, a lot more time for, for what we would process. So a lot more information can be encoded in a short time, and they have the machinery to decode it. In other words, if you're seeing a normal film as a human being, the bird is seeing it in slow motion. Yes. And it's got much more time, for example, to duck out of the way of your car as it's coming along with any luck so it won't get smashed. Exactly, yes. And this is one of the great adaptations of birds. Now they have to fly, so they need to be light. And so they have more, inf they have denser pepperoni versus lasagna neurons. Uh, Nikki Clayton also told me that our brain is a fruit cake, is a, is a, a layer cake and a bird brain is a fruit cake in terms of its shape. So she has something about food and brains. I'm not... <laughs> So, um, uh, and anyway, birds need to adapt to be able to fly. They have to be as light as possible. So their brains have to be able to process 
uh, and to uh, do things with, with fewer neurons. They also need to be able to shed neurons if they don't need them. Um, one of the chapters I've written about is about the physiology of, of, of a goose, a bar-headed goose that flies over the, the uh, uh, Himalayas, or, or do you guys say Himalayas here? <laughs> and, uh, more of a layer. Pardon? More of a layer. <laughs> layer cake, yeah. And uh, so they are able, this is the highest flying bird in the world, to fly at about 28,000 feet. And uh, they have, uh, I spoke to a woman who's now a, uh, an astronaut, but she was studying the physiology of penguins and bar-headed geese. And um, they have adapted, and the adaptations are what's cool about birds, they've adapted this whole suite of physiological uh, changes in order to be able to survive uh, these extremes. And they have more, you know, bigger wings, more loft helps them fly. They have, they breathe the air twice, they're able to recycle it. They have more mitochondria uh, in, their, in their cells, uh, bigger lungs, and it's just astounding that a bird can fly at these levels where the oxygen is so thin. And what they think, one, one speculation that they think happened is that these birds were flying between India and Tibet before there were Himalayas, and as the mountains formed over about 70 million years, they simply had to fly higher and higher and slowly were able to develop these extreme physiologies to be able to do this, this migration. Now a question about what obviously many of us are thinking, that these animals, these birds, are in some ways like us. And we have relationships with them now. I waived the February edition of the National Geographic, which has got any number of pages on bird brains, and it says the brainiacs. And there's a picture there of uh, one bird sitting on the top of a head of its sort of master, host, who's playing the piano. And apparently the bird likes Chopin and Delius. <laughs> and this story about the uh, sulfur-crested cockatoo that likes dancing to rock music. And of course, Alex, who is the African grey, which uh, had long conversations, a vocabulary of about 2,000 words, and it seemed to know them, what they meant. Now, there is an inclination, is there not, of our saying that to some extent like us, they're responding to us. How do you feel about that leap, Sonia? The question is, are birds responding to us? No, I, I, uh, the tendency to suggest that they are like us, anthropomorphism, if you like, Well, because the vocal learning actually evolved before humans, um, I would say the anthropomorphism is an interesting question. I believe that the birds have a tremendous capacity to be curious, to incorporate signals and perception. And if we are part of their reality, then they will do so. But to phrase that as anthropomorphic, we enjoy that attention. Um, and I guess I go back to being in that place of the observer, the scientist, what questions do I ask about that? In other words, if I've got a king parrot, mm. which regularly comes with a partner to my back door and expects to be fed, and I take out a plate, 
is it there because it likes to see me because it's my little friend or because one, it wants lunch? Whoever I am. Yeah. So I guess the, the human-animal friendship component um, is another way to look at that. And I, I would be happy to view it as a friend and a neighbor. And, and the reason I say that is because um, I've studied bird neighborhoods. And it turns out, so one of the other features in Australia is that the birds are sedentary. Um, they have long lives, so they live, the songbirds live about 15 years and they actually stay in the same territory. And so you can have a superb fairy wren and a New Holland neighbor and um, a white-browed scrub wren, and they can all persist, a little striated thornbill, and they will know each other for 10 years. Now, what we know is that they also have learned the vocalizations of their neighbors, and they respond to them. So if a superb fairy wren gives an alarm call, the New Holland honey eater neighbor knows that that is that bird, and will come to its aid and vice versa. So given that we can see that and we can experimentally test these neighborhood communities among birds taking risks for each other and coming to each other's aid at a time of need, I don't have a problem with viewing a bird who comes to my territory as a good neighbor. Jim? I would say the, probably the thorniest part of animal behavior is, is, is determining whether birds or any other animal have emotions. That's the, great, that's the great question about all animals. Even your dog that comes running to meet you and seems all happy and, and uh, I mean, it could just be exploiting an ecological niche. It knows that you feed it and, and it's getting, gonna get a food reward at some time. I mean, that's the extreme end of... Isn't, of that the, isn't that the same, however, isn't that the same, however, as our children? <laughs> no, my children love me. <laughs> How can you tell? I like to think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Sorry, go on. That's all right. But I wrote a, one of the chapters is about a guy, his name is Stephen Emlin at, at Cornell, at the, at the laboratory of O, the ornithology lab in, in Cornell, which is the premier bird institution in the world. And he um, studied uh, white-fronted bee-eaters in North Africa. And he, it's one of 10, 12 species that live in families. And not only do they live in families, but they, the, uh, the, the offspring will stay home in, in drought years and help raise the, uh, the next generation. They call them helpers at the nest. And they will help raise the next generation and these families will stay together, these extended families, grandmothers and so on, until the weather improves. And then they'll go off and, and form their own families. And he believed that this was, um, a true family behavior, and is how humans evolved in, in the early days. And this was a, this was a way of, of studying, they do the same thing with primates, but this was a way of studying human behavior without a cultural overlay so we could understand what evolution did for us in terms of, uh, of families and how, how we came together. And he actually wrote, uh, he observed these birds and they, they saw, uh, watched his parents left and step-parents came in and, and, and on and on, this whole soap opera there and these little holes in a cliff. And at the end of it, and I think he's still writing papers based on his research, he wrote a number of papers for a family therapy group about therapy among step-families. 
to show that you know, there's one thing, there's one thing we're not supposed to do based on um, what our culture tells us, but then there's this evolutionary drive that is also uh, part of the mix. And I know uh, when it comes to like step, you know, a stepfather and, and a daughter uh, coming together, it, it's, it's, it has an evolutionary aspect that's very different than the cultural aspect. And so he wrote all of these guidelines based on the white-fronted bee-eaters of Africa. So I found that very interesting. I guess I'd, I'd like to comment that we must be vigilant in such examples of not committing um, the natural fallacy, uh, which is a moralistic fallacy where we think that what we see in nature is good um, and that it should be emulated in human society. So, um, Because in addition to uh, cooperative behavior that you just described and the implication of an evolutionary justification for incest if it's not genetic we also have animals committing you know cannibalism and infanticide so i personally would not say that i would look at birds and say oh what can we learn from birds about being human i think that we have to be very vigilant about those kinds of comparisons but and that, i'm not saying that that's what you or steve emlin are saying but we must be vigilant because sometimes i get asked questions like well what would you like to imitate in birds and the answer is well, not, not really. I, I can't imagine anything. We're, we're both learning species, so we'll take the learning species. Um, but there is a risk when we try and copy nature. I want to ask you about one of those things that keeps boggling me, and that is ones which fly a long distance. You've men men mentioned a couple. And it's all very well if you're following your parents across continents. But there are some birds that get up and on their own with no training, find another continent on the other side of the planet. How the hell do they do that? Migration is still one of the great mysteries of, of the bird world. No one really knows. They've done a number of experiments, uh, including one, the same, the same guy, Stephen Emlin, did a, an experiment in a, uh, uh, what do you call a fake night sky? <laughs> It's observatory or a, a, yeah, planetarium. A planetarium, right? He put a bird in there, and he turned the constellations around, uh, and the bird was oriented on the constellations because as the the constellations turned, they had ink on the bottom of the bird's feet, and as the constellations turned, it would change where it was trying to get out of this dish. But what confounds this is then someone comes along and and does something completely different based on. Um, uh, topography and seeing mountains and the bird seems to, with a camera on its head seems to be following the topography so it's it's one of those things that probably has many many different layers one of the more interesting ones that I write about in the book is uh, something called um, quantum entanglement and birds have a chemical in their eye called cryptochrome and some researchers believe that birds with this chemical can see these magnetic lines on the planet that are a hundredth the power of a refrigerator magnet and they, they, the entanglement comes in through some kind of weird uh, hidden connection between the chemical and the, and the line and they can follow these lines through this process. I mean, it's not settled science, but there's some serious papers out there about it. So uh, it's still very much a question that's up for, up for an answer. 
guess I, I can add, um, my profession is the study of animal behavior, and one of the ways that one study migration is um, in terms of the individual decision to move and to take risks. So if you're going to be sedentary, one can argue that you're less of a risk taker than moving to a new area. And so um, there's this new discipline called personality research, which was snickered at a lot when it was suggested 10 years ago. Um, and, but there's now a pretty good evidence that personality traits like risk-taking, boldness, or shyness are genetically determined. And you can do that by, um, by breeding particular strains of traits and then doing personality tests. And it's also been established that risk-takers are the ones that are more likely to leave to find a new area. And so there's a whole body of evidence showing that in a rapidly changing world, there are advantages um, if you're doing a mate choice, if you're a shy individual to have a bold partner, to have a mixed brood with some sedentary and some bold that will be dispersers. And that as the environment increases in uncertainty, you have a greater proportion of bold and risk-taking individuals that are more likely to leave. So, you know, there are a couple of ways that one can look at it. And again, it all just opens questions for understanding the mechanism uh, for behavior um, rather than the pattern of, of what happens. And I, and I would say it goes to, to show how little we really know about the world, uh, the natural world especially. I did a, I've done quite a few stories on the wolves in Yellowstone Park. And, and to go to, to Sonia's point, uh, Doug Smith, who's the wolf biologist there, I've interviewed him many times, and he always tells me these stories about about pack behavior. And, and Yellowstone has the only um, uh, natural wolf population in the world. All other places, wolves are hunted. So what is an unhunted population like? So they're studying this in Yellowstone. So Doug and I were talking, he's, he's going on about all these things, and then at the end of it he said, but you know what, he said, we, we think this is why packs change and don't change and grow old and don't grow old. He says, but all of it changes when the, the alpha female changes because she has a different personality. So a, a personality, and they have no way to factor this in to what they're doing, by the way. They, they've studied wolves for, well, since 1994 in Yellowstone. But the minute the personality of one of the wolves changes, one of the lead wolves, it's a whole new ball game, and they, it confounds everything they're doing. So... It shows you some of the perils of wildlife research. I'll go for questions in a minute, but one more to you, Jim, about uh, bush turkeys and their friends. How did studying them give you an idea about how dinosaurs suddenly took off and became birds? One of the researchers in Missoula, they, the, I mentioned the other guy that does the hummingbird work, well, the, his, his uh, mentor, uh, Ken Dial, uh, was told, you know, he was talking about flight, bird, uh, di how dinosaurs first learned to fly, and he'd done all this work with birds, hooking them up to x-ray machines and wind tunnels, and, and, and really studying the dynamics of their, of their musculature and their feet. He, feet, by the way, he says are like, bird feet are extraordinary. He said they're like leathermen. He said a bird can, can do anything it wants with its feet. It's just unlike any other animal. Other animals are divided into three groups of different kinds of walking. He said, birds do all three. He said, look at their feet, they're amazing. But anyway, he was uh, studying uh, uh, these birds and someone said, well, what do you think happened uh, when dinosaurs first learned to fly? And he said, 
well, I don't know. And they said, well, why don't you apply all of this work you've done on, on bird physiology because birds are the dinosaurs that made it. They've, they were dinosaurs way back. And so he began studying chucker, par excuse me, chucker partridges. Uh, and he believes that, um, uh, that from the time a baby chucker partridge is born until it becomes a month or so old and is flying is, is very close to how dinosaurs evolved over millions of years to become uh, flyers. And um, he uh, studied them in a lab. He would watch them run and climb, and they were using their wings to balance themselves for their running. Now, these are precocial birds. I was telling Robin earlier that uh, Australian, do you call them bush turkeys or brush turkeys? Bush turkeys. Uh, they are super precocial. Now, birds in a nest, they're naked and helpless. They're fed worms. They are, um, they are altricial, but precocial birds are born, and they hit the ground running on the first day. Australian bush turkeys are super precocial. They are faster and better climbers than the adults on the first day to escape predators, and much like a dinosaur. And so he believes that these, these young partridges, which are also precocial, um, learn how to run on the first day to escape predators, and then after a couple of weeks they form wings, they're leaping off the hay bales he's put in his, his lab, and they're starting to use their wings to kind of glide to the ground, and eventually the wings are getting big enough they're, they're going to be used for flight. And that, that model, that, that's the microcosm of the, of the macrocosm of, of um, dinosaurs learning to fly. A very interesting, interesting approach. Questions. So, birds. Birds, but yeah, in the front here. No, you can't uh, just wait for the microphone. Right at the front, if you wouldn't mind just running down here and uh, don't use the term bird brain loosely again. Yes, ever. we've banished the term bird brain for now. Here comes the microphone making its way around the side here. In front over here. Um, I have a question about birds and balance. How, how come birds can stand in one leg and perch on a tree and go to sleep? I, I don't know, but it, it uh, cut, cuts down on the circulation, so it's actually energetically cheaper um, to only have to cycle the oxygen and blood through one leg, um, and so they just adjust their musculature. But it's an energy-saving mechanism. Energy yeah. saving, and you can maintain the balance mm. without. <laughs> How? <laughs> Two wings. There's one in the no. front. No, he. Thank you. Um, how does a cuckoo learn to speak cuckoo? Because they've tossed the. I mean, they're in somebody else's nest. That, yes, you grow good. up in a foreign land. How do you learn to speak that language? That is a great question. Cuckoo. I, they, they have a delayed sensitive period for song learning. So one of the big discoveries in North America on the White Crown Sparrow by Peter Marler and others in the 50s and 60s, they, uh, they discovered that, that these sparrows have a different dialect, and they brought them into the lab, and they hatched them, and it turns out that um, the egg that hatched... Um, 
did, did not sing. And so something was missing. So they put a tape recorder next to it. And they, then the bird uh, produced the song on the tape recorder, irrespective of what species it was, but only if it was exposed in the first 40 days. So that is what is referred to now as the critical period for song learning. So you have to be exposed during those first 40 days to a song. Now, because you're in the nest of your parents, usually, you'd be exposed to the species song. You store it as a memory template, and 150 days later, you begin to produce it as the babble that Jim was talking about. But what happens in the superb fairy wren, for example, it's the southern hemisphere species, and all of this is derived from the northern hemisphere, and we have a lot of, of work to do, excitingly, um, in Australia. It turns out they learn their song a lot earlier, so a superb fairy wren is actually producing its song at day 50. It doesn't have to wait 150 days. So the, the sensitive period, as we've shown, starts in the egg um, and in, in all species we've looked at in Australia. The cuckoo parasitizes the superb fairy wren. The cuckoo does not learn as an embryo. And we know when the cuckoo hatches, um, it's trying to find the right begging call that has been taught to the fairy wren uh, embryo that it produces as it's hatching. And the cuckoo will try and find it. And there's a me, me, me. Beep, 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 beep. And if it finds the right one, it gets fed. But if it goes beep, and that's not the right note, the parents come with food and abandon it to starve. So if the cuckoo, by trial and error, finds the right note, it lives, right? But it has not learned its song yet. And its critical period only happens five to seven months later when it has dispersed from the fairy wren nest, goes to an area where cuckoos are hanging out, and then its sensitive period opens. So it's a delayed sensitive period for vocal imprinting. I think that's amazing. The, what the sensitive period for lyrebirds is? Well, so, so then you have the mimics, and they have, um, they, they have, generally speaking, a longer sensitive period. Um, and and they copy then sounds from their environment. May I ask you a question then that goes to lyrebirds to some extent, but also budgerigars. The question was, how is the budgie in the cage able to, if you say pretty poly, it then learns pretty poly, why is there this capacity for language or naming names? And as I understand it, published a couple of years ago in the journal Science, Budgerigars are in huge flocks, and it turns out that uh, maybe the parents and a couple of the offspring have to learn who they are, a particular, not a name, but a particular call, so that amongst that vast crowd, you can then keep in touch with your family, and that's why they can learn and how it happens. Make sense? does make sense. And you have open-ended learners and closed learners. So some species learn across their lifetime and others uh, for a shorter period of time, depending on you know, their social structure. Yeah. I myself have um, witnessed pelicans at Lake Eyre in the far north of South Australia while it was in flood. Do we have a satisfactory answer on how, in this instance, Australian coastal birds make their way to the middle of the country the few times that it's full of water? I don't know the answer to that. Does, maybe somebody in the audience does. Um, but, I, but I think there are um, air pressure and chemical signatures that are perceived that, that begin to inspire the risk takers in the group. So that's what I imagine is the mechanism, that there's something that sets off a response where you have your, um, your scouts. Okay. 
What do you think about Tim Lowe, the Australian biologist's book, Where Song Began? How does that fit with the body of evidence there is about song originating in Australia? It's a beautiful summary. I, I think he's done a fabulous job of telling the story. Yeah. Several here in the front. And there's one at the back here. One up the hill. One in Unley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still moving. Okay. It's a scenic route. <laughs> there we go. I was just wondering, in aviculture, there's a lot of discussion about uh, trying to reintroduce species to the wild that have been basically um, kept in captivity. Uh, a lot of uh, captive birds are bred in incubators. They're taken from um, very young and trained. So of what you're saying, my understanding is that this is going to be very difficult to actually reintroduce species to the wild because a lot of the stuff that they learn is learned from the parents basically in the wild, in the nest. So uh, with uh, things like the Swift Parrot Program, which is currently going on having uh, limited success, do you see that there's actually a future for trying to, in aviculture, reintroduce birds to the wild? Absolutely, if we make recordings of parental calls and play them to the eggs. And that's been done with zebra finch, um, and you can actually create learning lineages. Yes? Yes, there, there are lots of problems with the learned sibling um, signature and the family signature and the inbreeding avoidance mechanisms, but it all starts with an observation. And so we humans should not just willy-nilly put things in captivity and rear it for our consumption and think then, oh my, we've got a problem, we can just reintroduce it to the wild. So I don't know the answer to the question, but it's not as easy as what we thought because they do learn as an embryo. Um, I just had a, a question about the neurobiology, going back to what you were saying about um, birds needing, having like a fruitcake brain compared to humans. What, what about, um, how, how does that work for birds that don't fly, I guess, like, or like the kind of evolutionary, um, yeah, the, like how, how did that happen and what happens for birds that don't fly? Is it, is it any different or, yeah, do you know? Uh, so, so yes, the brain is certainly different in, in birds that don't fly because um, I believe the birds that don't fly are also not vocal learners. So there are a couple of differences um, in, the, in the lineages. Uh, and, and as a result, the brain organization is different and they are not under the same selective pressures to have um, a very small brain in relation to the body size. One of the great discoveries about birds was for... Uh, I think back in the 1800s, a researcher, I think a German researcher, looked at a bird brain and said it was so unlike ours that birds were, were stupid, dumb, and then the whole bird brain concept flowed from that. And it wasn't until, I think, the early 2000s that people started to say, well, this is wrong. They look different, but the microarchitecture is very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, I talked to a guy who does um, 
who studies ev evolution in bird brains and said, says some of the, like the audio cortex are, are indistinguishable from the human version. And um, so back in, in the early 2000s, the researchers got together and said, we're going to retire the whole bird brain notion. We're going to rename the parts of the bird brain and to reflect our new understanding that birds look different, but they're, they're very much uh, along the lines of our own intelligence in some ways. Hi, I'm, I just wanted to go back to the, the lyrebirds um, and the songbirds and want to know why they would choose to mimic a, a chainsaw or a kookaburra or what, what the reason behind it was. Uh, gen generally speaking, th there, there is a pattern that if you have a, a rich repertoire, if you have learned many different elements, then um, you are considered more attractive by the opposite sex, or you can defend your territory better against intruders because um, it's a signal of your quality. And that goes back to what kind of world do we want? Uh, what kind of world are we creating? Because the now is actually influencing every living organism. And the, the mimics are a wonderful example. They're just learning, right? They, they were always learning in their history. But as we are changing the world, the stimuli that they can use for their rich repertoire to impress the ladies and defend against the males incorporates our sounds as well. And I think that's, um, that's an important insight. So purposes of, of increased fitness, so we think. Well, can I ask the question that Hollis Taylor from Macquarie University brought up in her latest book, is birdsong music? And she's been, as a musician, out in the outback, actually, uh, recording butcher birds, doing duets, trios, that sometimes last for two or three hours. And she says, as a musician, it is music, and she's composed music with them. <laughs> uh, do you find that sacrilege? <laughs> no, it sounds beautiful. No, uh, I, I think, I mean, these vocal learners who are also, you know, problem solvers, and, and we've only touched on the emotion a little bit, and I, I guess I'd like to tell the story about the laughing Kea, because I think that's important. As we connect with uh, birds, they do amazing things, and these are these observations that, that get us to just slow down for a moment and, and, and wonder and appreciate their existence, whether it's music or not. I don't know, but the, the, the story that I would like to share perhaps briefly is we, we often think that music is a trait that we humans do and that other animals don't. And we now know that other animals, including birds, make tools um, and you know, they have language, um, syntax and semantics in vocalization and they have rhythm, so all of that, and they have melody, whether we call it music or not. But another thing they have is laughter. And that was considered in the realm of human behavior. And just recently, um, so some bird species play. And the kea is wonderful, a New Zealand parrot. It rumbles and tumbles and tickles. And, and during this play behavior, they make little chortle sounds. And so the researchers recorded the chortle, and we'll just call that laughter now. And so they're chuckling away when they're tumbling. And they experimentally broadcast the laughter and induced chaos to play or play longer. 
And this is a beautiful example, <laughs> reminded me with the musician and the butcher birds, you know, as they were egging each other on with the laughter or the music. Um, and in the case of the Kea, it's a beautiful example of mood contagion. And so, you know, even though you can't measure the emotion, because how does one get inside a bird to say, oh, I'm feeling very content or I'm rather exuberant now. But if you have a call that you broadcast and it creates the behavior of playfulness over extended times, then I think we can conclude that they do have um, laughter and that it can act as a mood contagion. So the same, I think, would apply to the music. And by the way, in the uh, latest uh, National Geographic, there's a wonderful picture of Kia in New Zealand playing a sort of war, um, pulling chains, you know, to see who can pull the, the strongest, like a tug of war. Final question over there, please. Here. Um, speaking earlier on, you were talking about how stimuli created um, responses in development within the embryo, potentially like with the, zebra, the zebrafish and learning song well before the brain is developed, and generation to generation. What sort of implications does that have between the work of, say, Lamarck and Darwin in terms of evolution? How does what sort of follow-on ramifications does that sort of uh, discovery have? Great question. So Lamarck was spurned, um, and, and now there's evidence it's, um, I guess, in, in the field of epigenetics and methylation. So if you are exposed to a particular stimulus, then you can actually methylate the DNA. And so it changes your phenotype without changing your DNA. So that, that is the mechanism for Lamarckian evolution. But I, I wouldn't use those terms personally for the cultural learning. Um, but it does indicate in the case of, uh, of song learning, that you can have cultural lineages and acoustic landscapes, just like you were talking about the magnetic landscapes. There are also these song lines and acoustical landscapes, and we're just beginning to explore how they are formed and maintained by culture and learning. Final point? I wanted to say one more thing about language. Um, some people, chickadee language, by the way, is by far the most advanced of bird languages. It's been studied for, for decades, a long time, lots of papers. And they think that um, uh, chick there's a researcher in Montana who studied chickadees and believes that chickadees in Montana can speak, could speak to chickadees in Japan and they would understand each other. Not only that, but squirrels and rabbits and other animals would also understand chickadee because they're very verbal and they, they have this whole array of... Um, of language that no other bird species has. It's open-ended, which is one of the hallmarks of human language. That means you can say there's no end to the number of words, like ravens have 33 calls or something like that. Chickadees have hundreds, and, and they just haven't been able to find... It's not finite. The amazing wonder of birds, yes. <laughs> Let's finish there, because um, we've run out of time. And Jim is going to sign books over there. You're not going to sign books over there, are you, Sonia? No book I yet? I don't have a book. She doesn't have a book. <laughs> She'll sign your T-shirt. There you are. <laughs> Thank you for listening and Thank you. here's to the birds.